in three, two, one. Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Damon Linker, also regular, is away this week, uh, but we are fortunate to have sitting in for him the big honcho uh, at uh, the Bulwark, the editor, Jonathan V. Last. And our guest this week is Kim Whaley, professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law and author of a highly relevant new book, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. So welcome, one and all. Um Kim, I'm going to start right out with you because uh, we've had data this week showing that whereas 58% of Democrats say they prefer to vote by mail, only 17% of Republicans do. What are we looking at? Are we looking at a complete train wreck? So I'm afraid the answer, Mona, is yes. And let me just say thank you for inviting me today. Um, but we are headed for a train wreck. And the simple reason is that there has to be some way to vote. So historically, we go physically to the polls. As we saw in uh, at the primary level, a lot of those polling stations will be closed due to COVID. In addition, those that are open could uh, leave particularly vulnerable populations uh, at risk of becoming sick and even dying. We now are well over 160,000 deaths in the United States. So that is a fraught option. So option B is vote by mail. So the the original um, concern was, can the states get up to speed to get the mail-in ballots printed in the languages that are needed to uh, change the laws to enable people to vote by mail without an excuse? And I can talk about that. A lot of states have gone to that uh, excuse-free mail-in option. Um, By the way, didn't the Supreme Court just rule that Rhode Island can go ahead with that? That was, I think, came down today. It did. Uh, the Supreme it Court, did. the Supreme Court did rule today. Uh, basically, decided to let things lie in Rhode Island. Uh, that is not the way things have gone in other states with respect to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's been quite active, um, actually, in stalling states' abilities to make voting access easier in a pandemic. Um, but essentially, because it's logistically difficult to get the vote-by-mail process going, and now, as we've seen, and I know we'll talk about, the president is slowing down the United States Postal Service, and I think made known today that the reason is to make it harder to vote. <laughs> so if you can't do it by mail and you can't do it in person, I'm not sure what what the option three is. Uh and that's really where we're left, in addition to many other ways that the election could go off the rails, including delays and counting the ballots and challenges to the legitimacy and electoral college meltdowns and Russian interference and maybe even violence um, at, the, at the polls or certainly uh, voter intimidation by virtue of the fact that a longstanding court order precluding those kinds of uh, same-day tactics to prevent voting intimidation, that's been lifted as well. So I hate to say it, Mona, but I've been telling people vote by mail, and now we're in a moment where uh, not only is vote by mail not being um, 
sort of, I think, universally accepted as legitimate, but it's being thwarted. There was a really important piece, I think, in the Washington Post about uh, what happened in Minneapolis during the over the summer prior to a um, to the to a what an election over the summer, and there was a a housing complex with 567 residents who mysteriously mysteriously stopped receiving their mail before a week, uh, for more than a week. And these are low income residents. And as a result, it was right before um, the primaries. As a result, many of them couldn't cast their their mail in ballots. Uh, I mean, that is that's voter suppression in real time. You know, one doesn't get a sense. This is such an obvious, huge, looming problem. And yet you don't get any sense of uh, um, any kind of urgency about dealing with it from anyone. Um, you know, I will tell you that I have tried three times in three different ways to apply for an absentee ballot. Now, maybe I'm too soon. You know, maybe you're only allowed to do it maybe in the few weeks right prior to the election. I don't know, but I have gotten zero response. I mean, I haven't even gotten a notification from the state of Virginia saying, well, we received your request. It was too early, you know, come back or, you know, it will be processed in due course or I've heard nothing, nothing at all. I wrote on, you know, a physical letter. I did it online. Um, you know, it, and that's, that's kind of amazing. And I have to say, I, I have the greatest respect for the state of Virginia. Normally, this state does things in a super efficient way. People talk about the debate today between uh, voter fraud and voter suppression, but a lot of it is just uh, the complexities uh, and expense of actually running these massive enterprises that we call elections. And this has now been complicated by having to do it in a pandemic where the states don't have the money they need to function across other important initiatives. Uh, Congress is not giving the states the money that they need to have functioning elections. So, so on the one hand, it could be, when I say flat out voter suppression, I mean, the excuse for this Minneapolis uh, these Minneapolis building residents given by the postal service was that there was a COVID outbreak, but there was no COVID outbreak. So there is what I say to my students, my law students, there's the cute factor where people make up excuses, but there really could be something nefarious there. And there could just be on the other end, you know, it's, this is hard to do without the infrastructure, without the money, without the training, without the people. Um, but you know, the, Option three, of course, is that you know I think a lot of people don't understand that we don't have a single voting system. We've got thousands, really, if you count the counties, and many of them are administered um, by politicians. So, so there's an incentive, right? Even if it's not flat out illegal, there's an incentive to make it harder for people uh, across the board to register. And to vote, and you know, your story is one of many, many people. Um, even Stacey Abrams um, in the primaries got her absentee ballot reportedly, you know, in Georgia. And of course, the voter suppression uh, sort of debate around the Georgia gubernatorial campaign was was serious. And so you'd think that if Georgia was going to pay attention to a single voter, it might be <laughs> Stacey Abrams. And hers came already sealed. The envelope was pre-sealed, so she couldn't use it. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, we are going to have to personally have a roadmap or a game plan for how we're going to get our vote to count and um, pull up you know, your calendar and put in the early days of voting if it's allowed in your state. And if you don't get your mail-in ballot and you can't vote early, 
uh, show up at the polls with your hand sanitizer and your mask and plan mm-hmm. to wait all day. And yeah. if, and if they, if you, and if it turns out because so many polling stations have been closed that you were registered at a closed polling station. So this can happen. They'll tell you, listen, you have to go home. You're not registered here. Ask for a provisional ballot. That should be on the game plan as well. And under federal law, they have to give you one. But of course, we also saw uh, in Puerto Rico this week that people showed up at the polls and the pieces of paper to actually vote on were not there. Um, so that they, they just didn't have the ballots for people. Uh, this this is you know like planning a wedding reception with no guest list, no caterer, and no money. Um, and 100 people show up at your door, it's really hard to pull that one off. And and I do think a lot of the problem here is around just the logistics and the complexity of this and not having the money. And, and that's something Congress can fix, and they're just not willing to do it. So, so let me ask you this. Of course, Congress can fix it, but and, and Congress already passed, you know, the House anyway passed a uh, resolution, I think back in May, that would have provided all the funds, but the president doesn't want it. Um, and um, I'm presuming the Republicans in the Senate don't also, since they're in lockstep with the president, even though Republicans recognize that they benefit from mail-in voting. Um, but let me ask you about other possible sources of money. Um, Norm Ornstein had a piece in The Atlantic where he talked about, you know, private groups could, uh, you know, nonprofits and various types of organizations can chip in to help defray the costs of this very unusual election. I mean, what about Mike Bloomberg? I mean, is that legal? Is that possible? Yeah. So I actually did a piece as well in The Hill on that very subject and was surprised in my research to find out, for example, that um, both Lyft and Uber, Lyft to more degree than Uber, are offering discounted or completely free rides to the polls in November. Uh, that I think is significant, particularly for low-income people who don't have access to their own transportation, a single mom uh, with shift work that has to take two buses to get to the polling station and find a babysitter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we've also seen in, in uh, Atlanta, for example, uh, you know, major sports arenas being donated for massive polling stations. I think that is another way to go. And that is not so much have multiple polling stations at, you know, your, your local school or a church or et cetera, but, uh, you know, a mega station that is, that, that is really hard to kind of close down at the last minute. Um, so we do see, we do see the private sector step up and, you know, I think there should be more. I mean, you, you mentioned Mike Bloomberg, he definitely seems to have just kind of fallen off the screen in a weird way and maybe I'm missing it. Um, but, uh, it's illegal to actually purchase votes to pay someone to vote one way or the other. Um, but it's not illegal for not only corporations to step in and, you know, they could send porta potties and hand sanitizer and bottled water um, to the polls and, and PPE for the poll yes. workers. And we've also seen there's a huge initiative also that I've discovered that I mentioned in my piece with hundreds of corporations that have are not only giving their uh, workers the day off to vote or a day off to vote if it's early voting, but also also allowing them to volunteer at the polls. We also have a crisis right now with poll workers. In the Mm -hmm. United States, we don't have full-time employees uh, that 
that man the polls um, on election day. Those they're they're volunteers, and even to the extent which they're paid, it's low pay. They tend to be um, overwhelmingly over the age of sixty, which means they're more vulnerable to COVID. And of course, when you're changing ballots, you're changing procedures, processes, you're changing the kinds of identification that are required. Imagine. Um, you know, the first time you're looking at a mail-in ballot as a brand new poll worker, some of these states require some expertise in signature matching. Uh, I mean, this is hard to, to, to implement. So we're seeing states now go to tapping into public workers, uh, lowering the age for polling workers for teenagers. The Tennessee General Assembly lowered it from 17 to 16. Um, even the National Guard has been uh, sort of identified as potentially helping in you know, showing up at the polls and private corporations could increasingly decide uh, to give their workers the ability, basically pay them to be the front lines of our democracy. I mean, I just don't think, yeah. I don't see how anyone benefits except maybe a certain person in the White House. And I'm not even sure about that. Anyone benefits for a com- from a completely botched, then illegitimate election, because that means to American democracy itself is delegitimized. And, you know, um, our friend JVL did a, a great newsletter on this with respect to Belarus and other parts of the country this week or the world this week about how um, a botched election is is a disaster zone that I don't think most Americans can even fathom or contemplate. This should be, as you indicate, Mona, number one priority. And bailing out the Postal Service is less than 1% of the month, would cost less than 1% of what both the Republicans and Democrats and their separate bills for the next COVID relief. I mean, this is this is chump change, and we have Trump uh, yeah. blatantly okay. wanting to 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 basically mm-hmm. undermine it. Yes, uh, Bill Galston, you wanted in on this. Uh, yeah, uh, these are all big and important problems, but in my view, there's an even bigger and more important problem. Uh, Despite all of these complications, there's every reason to believe that there's going to be a record turnout in 2020. This will not be a poorly attended election, I guarantee you. Uh, We had about 133 million ballots cast in 2016. I think we could see 145 or even 150 million this time. Uh, And Uh, Of those ballots, upwards of 60 million are going to be legitimately submitted mail-in ballots. Uh, As you pointed out in your setup, Mona, there is real asymmetry between the political parties when it comes to voting patterns. The overwhelming majority of Republicans are going to vote in person the day of. The overwhelming majority of Democrats are going to vote uh, are going to vote by mail, uh, and what that means is that the returns on election night are going to look very Republican, and then you know, over the next twenty four to forty eight hours they will shift. Uh, all of that presupposes that the states don't get any better at counting mail in ballots than they now are. Uh, But they'd better, because the president has already signaled his determination to distinguish between the votes that are counted by election night, quote unquote, the legitimate votes, 
and all the rest, you know, which he regards as evidence of fraud on a hitherto un, un, unseen scale. So the bigger problem is not voter suppression, but rather the inability to count the ballots that are cast quickly enough to avoid what you properly called a train wreck. That's what keeps me up at night. Yes, Linda. Well, uh, let me offer a possible solution to this dilemma because I happen to be in uh, Boulder, Colorado right now, and I lived in Colorado for a number of years and voted here. Uh, Colorado is one of those states that mails all uh, registered voters ballots ahead of time, and you have an option. You can either mail it back or on election day, you can take it to the normal polling place and you can deposit it uh, in a box for that purpose. If Americans did that, and uh, particularly with drive-through drop-offs as we had uh, here in Boulder, where somebody actually stands outside the polling place and you roll down your window and you hand them the ballot, uh, you could help solve the problem of uh, not having to stand in line, not having to have exposure to other people, and having your ballot actually counted that night. But what is really disgraceful here, Mona, and, and what is just unfathomable to me, is that if we saw in any other country the leader of that country announce publicly that he was doing things to prevent people from being able to cast a vote, we would be uh, outraged. We would consider it a banana republic. We would uh, be claiming election fraud. And yet the president did that. He did that this week by going on uh, Fox Business and basically telling Maria uh, Bartolomo that um, he was holding back money from the post office because he didn't want there to be mail-in voting. Uh, I, I just think we need a public education campaign. We need to encourage people to ask for ballots, but I would encourage people not to put them in a mailbox, but rather to get to the polls on election day, get to those polling places capable of receiving same-day mail-in ballots and depositing them there, because I think you will have a much better chance that your vote is going to be counted on election night. And there has to be, don't you all agree, there has to be sort of a public education preparation for the fact that the count on election night is most likely to go Republican and to change, as Bill was saying, as the as the mail-in ballots are counted so that people are not led astray and, and so that Trump doesn't have an opportunity. I mean, Trump could win this election, of course, but um, say he isn't, say he, you know, is only ahead on election night, declares himself the winner. And then when the rest of the votes are counted, he claims that there was, uh, you know, that there, that there was fraud. Um, so that, that at least in part can be headed off, don't you think, if people are sort of warned about the possibility ahead of time? JVL, what do you say? Uh, I don't. I don't think it can be headed off. Uh, this is the thing which has kept me awake at night for Trump uh, for four years is that if he were to act in the last, say, four or six weeks of the election the way he did in the last four to six weeks of the 2016 election, uh, it could 
wind up sparking a constitutional crisis. And this is what Kim is talking about. She hasn't even given you her really scary rap. <laughs> That's right. I wrote it for you this week. Right. We'll work. <laughs> like if you guys want to hear the really scary stuff, Kim can do that. Uh, yeah, no, I agree completely that that the scary stuff happens on and after uh, November 3rd. Yeah. Uh, and here's here's the thing. So Donald Trump, I believe, is I believe there's a significant chance. I, I won't call it a you know, let's call it a two in five chance, maybe a one in five chance that he simply declares victory on election night regardless of anything. Uh, you know, it doesn't even matter what, because you know, we're not going to have exit polls. The exit polls will be meaningless this year. There is no right. way to really pull the exits, right? And he will say, we have some very strong numbers and uh, and we've won this election. And when he does that, 30% of the country will take it to mean that he has won the election. And the elected Republicans uh, in the nation's capital, they are not going to do anything about it. No, you know, Mitt Romney and maybe Ben Sass will say, hold on, not so fast. And the rest of them will either go into total radio silence or will say, yep, support our president. Uh, and I mean, I just don't know what happens from there. You know, I when you look at the world we seem to be careening towards, it is a slow motion, slow rolling disaster, which winds up with us in a place like Hungary or something, uh, you know, headed towards a bizarre sort of soft authoritarianism. And I feel weird saying this because my entire political life dating back to 2000, uh, people on both sides have been obsessed with election fraud and cheating. And, you know, Republicans are always worried about the dead people in Chicago voting and liberals have their crazy conspiracy theories about the Diebold voting machines in Ohio. Wave this stuff away and said, of course, look, every election has some fraud in it. There's no such thing as a perfect election, uh, you know, but you ought to understand that most of these errors cancel one another out. And in 99.9% of the cases, the, the person who actually won the election actually wins the election election. And I I just don't think there's any way to look at this scenario and believe with total confidence that that's going to be the case this time around. Bill? <laughs> I wish I could disagree with Jonathan. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, all I can say is that there is an opportunity to improve the odds uh, that a complete train wreck can be avoided. Uh, States during the primaries got a real wake-up call, you know, as the dry run with a lot of mail-in ballots worked out very, very badly uh, in most of them. And I would hope that the secretaries of state who are ultimately responsible for this in the 50 states are working 24-7 uh, to do better on, on November 3rd. They can do better. Uh, it, will, it will require a massive organizational effort. It will require some changes in regulations wherever possible. Uh, I think it's a very bad idea. Uh, to you know, to have mail-in ballots accepted if they're postmarked by you know by election night, that guarantees that there'll be lots of very late ballots, even if even if the counting system is is much better uh, by November than it was during the during the primaries. 
Uh, I think it would be much better to move back the dates at which mail-in ballots will be accepted. Right. Uh, so that, and there's a second thing that states can do, some of them by regulation and some of them, unfortunately, by law. Many states, as I understand it, now prohibit the beginning of the counting of mail-in ballots until the last in-person ballot has been cast and the polls have been closed. That's madness. That's an invitation to disaster. Uh, It ought to be possible to count the mail-in ballots as they come in so so that the states could have a running start towards a reasonably timely count. I could go on. Of course, they're going to respond, well, but that, you know, risks the this these totals leaking out and thereby I, I, I suppressing understand. in-person turnout. And- it's the same logic. It's I understand. It's the same logic uh, that prohibits the release of exit polls until the polls have closed. But the mm-hmm. question facing us this year is where is the greater risk? There is right. no good solution, but there are better and worse solutions. And right now, we're on track to the worst of all possible solutions. Well, part of the problem, Mona, is this the fact that we have 50 different states. I mean, we can have a, a great conversation about the various ways of making voting easy. In five states, it's been almost exclusively, uh, including uh, Colorado, exclusively by mail. There are ways of doing it. It's just at this point, the Republicans have a $20 million war chest. There are over 140, when I last checked, uh, lawsuits being filed across the country to challenge these logical uh, ways of changing voting. You mean um, they have a, war, a legal war chest exactly. just to fight these things, right? Exactly. Right, right. And we have the yeah. Supreme Court. We have basic a Supreme Court precedent saying courts should not step in close to an election. So we are we're sort of in the in the closing stretch here, and legislative solutions, even to the extent to which they'll make voting easier, we will see lawsuits continue, and those lawsuits, if they get to courts, courts will. Uh, be disinclined to intervene. So, so even if we were to fix it in, you know, a, a large substantial number of states that uh, up until now have made it hard to vote by mail or uh, aren't counting them on time because as, um, you know, indicated some states say that you can't do the counting. We're not going to see national legislation, even though Congress does have the authority under the Constitution at the federal level. Um, we're not going to see, you know, across the board, just like we didn't see across the board effective response to the coronavirus. So there will be pockets of uh, sort of disputes of states yeah. that we don't yeah. know. Okay. And- last last question on this topic. Um, are there uh, are any of the battleground states states that um, do not permit mail in ballots at all? At this point, the states that are not extending excuse free mail in but voting include mm-hmm. Indiana, Kentucky, um, Louisiana, Missouri, New York, South Carolina, and Tennessee. Mississippi and Texas also require an excuse. The rest of the states either require you to request an absentee ballot, which with like your experience isn't so helpful if you don't get one, but you don't need an excuse mm-hmm. or you can use mail-in voting easily or with uh, have the alternative of limited in-person voting. Um, what I don't know and this, I had the same question you, that you, you seem to be raising here is how, what the other 
provisions for counting ballots, how those play out in the swing states. And I'm actually in the process of doing that research to to pinpoint, okay, where are we going to see the, the real fights post uh November 3rd. And, you know, as I wrote in the piece this week for the Bulwark, the deadlines set by Congress um, make it possible, essentially, for legislatures at the 11th hour to come in and call the election one way or the other, notwithstanding the popular vote. Um, uh, you know, and if Trump say for Trump on 11-3 were to say, you know, this is my election, that you don't have a, a good count by December 8th, uh, the state state legislatures then could go in under the Constitution and federal law and say, we are deciding to cast our electoral votes this way, notwithstanding pre-existing state law. Uh, and so then, well. yeah, and then we're in really, uh, you know, we're in a real mess. We're in a real polarized situation in the country. Yeah. Bill, what did you have one more thing you wanted to add? Uh, no, only oh, okay. to, only, only to say, Mona, that that all all of these horrible scenarios were laid out in great t- detail in in a law review article by Edward Foley that I referred to a couple of weeks ago on this yes. program. Everybody should read it. Uh, it's the only law review piece I've ever read that kept me up at night afterwards. Oh, yeah. Okay, let us now turn to uh, the Biden-Harris ticket. Uh, the In the 24 hours after Kamala Harris was named, uh, the Biden campaign pulled in $26 million in contributions, including from 150,000 new donors. So, Linda... Um, what do you make of this? Uh, how, what what are the um, how do you, how do you think it it was rolled out? How do you think it went? I thought it went brilliantly, uh, and frankly, I was not a huge uh, Kamala Harris fan. Um, I didn't like some of what she did in debates. Although looking back now, I I sort of relish the thought that she'll do something similar to Mike Pence uh, in a debate. Um, but I thought she came across as an extraordinarily warm and human person with a very fine record uh, in terms of her qualifications for the office. And I thought the way in which she deferred uh, to Biden, the way in which she talked about him in very personal terms, the way she uh, invoked the name of his uh, deceased son, uh, whom she had served with as an attorney general, uh, Beau Biden, all of that, I thought, was just incredible. I, I don't know that it could have gone better than it did. Uh, she was, you know, I watched it on television, as everybody else did. And several people who know her say that she is extremely warm in person, but that sometimes before big crowds, she comes across uh, a little more harshly. Here, she had a way of looking into the camera when it was appropriate um, and conveying that she was talking to you as opposed to talking to throngs of people. So I was very pleased. Um, I think she's going to be a tremendous addition uh, to the Biden campaign. I think she's going to energize people. And I think, you know, most of all, she's really gotten under Donald Trump's skin and his sexist and frankly racist um, predisposition is coming out very visibly in his reaction to her selection. Well, Linda's charmed, JVL. What about you? Yeah, I I think she was the smart pick. I mean, I I don't like her 
you know, all that much myself. Of course, like every, you know, good never Trump type, I would have preferred Gina Raimondo or something like that. But but this isn't for me, right? This this pick right. isn't to make JVL happy. And if I was had been if I had been running the Biden campaign, I probably would have wanted them to pick Harris. I think she was the best move on the board. I, you know, I mean, she's she's a really interesting commodity because sometimes I look at her and I think she's Bill Clinton. And then sometimes I look at her and I think she's Hillary Clinton. And, <laughs> No, no, and I, I just mean this as a as a political commodity. I don't mean I, I don't, understand. No I know, but that was there. a very um, very interesting way of putting it. And I I I tend to lean towards the Bill Clinton stuff. Uh, I mean, when she she has very real charisma. She is, you know, we talk about just sort of raw political horse flesh, and she a lot of times just looks like a Bill Clinton, Tony Blair, Barack Obama type in, in the sense that she's wildly charismatic. She can lock on to people uh, and you could just see her making connections with the audience. And then sometimes not. Sometimes she looks like she's kind of hectoring and like she's used to getting by on moral authority, uh, which is which is a weakness. And but that said, you know, again, we'll we will find out which kind of politician she is uh, in the future. But the vice president's job is mostly to do no harm, and I think she was the the safest and smartest of the do no harm picks. That also goes and reinforces the central message of the Biden administration, which is just competence. You know, no drama competence, and uh, I don't know. I mean, if America isn't ready for no drama competence at this point, then we never will be. <laughs> right. If America isn't panting for it at this point. Um, well, um, Kim, you know, I, my sense about it was that um, her weaknesses as a presidential candidate um, were that uh, she didn't really seem to have a clear idea of why she was running other than that she was fulfilling her destiny, right? Because she's, she is such a rare bird in the sense of she's, she's got it all. She's bright. She's attractive. She's, she's charismatic. She's, you know, she has all these things going for her. Um, and, um, but, but in her race, you know, she, she really did flub the famous Teddy Kennedy question, you know, why do you want to be president? She just, she just was all over the place and not really clear about it. But as a vice president, none of that matters, right? None of that matters because she's not the, she's not the number one candidate. She's just there to be in the support role. And then all of those other things about her, you know, how she checks all the boxes that Biden needs uh, that become much more important than, you know, her message. But but let me just let me just pose a question to you because um, some of the people on the right uh, right out of the box were saying, oh well, she may not be eligible. There was a guy from the Claremont Institute who published something in Newsweek the, the day of her announcement or the next day, saying, well, she may not be eligible because she may not be under the Fourteenth Amendment a natural born citizen. <laughs> Your response? Well, I haven't looked. You know, we saw this with Bertha Gate, and um, I haven't. You know, looked into her personal history. Uh, it didn't stop people from, including our current president, attacking uh, Barack Obama, even when he produced his birth certificate. Um, but, but I, I also didn't love her during the um, the run up to the nomination, and in part because she just seemed, for lack of a better word, so political, sort of just like going with the winds of the polls. Um, but one thing, in addition to looking forward to Maya Rudolph's SNL impersonations of her in the fall, mm-hmm. was exciting um, that. 
that that I thought what she did very very well was was showcase Biden in her speech. Uh, I I got a better sense of who he was, and what came across to me was that he's a man of character, and and. I do think we as a culture politically and as a nation are lacking in um, adherence to some kind of core central value system. And when she spoke about his loving relationship with his late son, Beau Biden, it was genuine. I felt that as something that really moved her and that she was willing in that moment to, to basically uh, put the light spotlight on him and in on uh, identify something about him that is really missing in national politics that really came across to me in addition of course to as a mother of four daughters i mean uh, this is this is just a thrilling moment to have a woman on the ticket again bill i have to confess that all of this talk of beau biden while i understand it makes me slightly uncomfortable because biden has another son who's still with us and it just feels like he's being slighted but i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm too sensitive what do you say oh Look, uh, actually, I think on an early version of this show, uh, I treated you to my family drama analysis of Hunter Blyden's plot. I remember. I'm not going to repeat that now, uh, but I am going to make a point that uh, I think hasn't been made up to now, and that is the overall strategic task or challenge that Joe Biden faced in making a vice presidential selection and how he seems to have achieved it with Kamala Harris. His challenge was to seal the unity of the Democratic Party uh, without scaring the horses in the suburbs. And, and, And I think that he's pulled that off with both the Harris selection and the and the products of these uh, half a dozen issues task forces that were explicitly an effort to to conciliate the left uh, and to come up with a unified stance on some on some of the major issues before the country and has been codified in the 2020 platform uh, and uh, he has kept his balance in circumstances in in which it would have been very easy to lose it. And I think that the party is going into this convention and general election as genuinely unified as I've seen it in many, many decades. Uh, A unified party, of course, is not always a guarantee of success, but it tends to be a necessary condition. And I think, I think it has been, I think it has been achieved. uh, And, not at the expense of reaching out uh, to the to his moderate flank. Could Linda, I, did you have one more? I did. I just had one more thing. I, I have found it fascinating in the rollout uh, of this that suddenly the news media has discovered that Kamala Harris is not just African-American, but that she is also the first South Asian uh, woman uh, or person to be uh, on a ticket. And it really does point to the her immigrant root, 
uh, roots. And I have missed the piece that you referred to. I will, as soon as the podcast is over, get busy and read it and probably try and do a response to it uh, on whether or not she is eligible under the 14th Amendment. But one of the things that I had noted was that they've had a racist attack on her. They've had a sexist attack on her. And now apparently they've got a xenophobic attack on her. She is, of course, eligible. She was born in the United States. Of course. And uh, I find it interesting that some of the same people making that claim didn't seem to have any problem at all about uh, Ted Cruz having been born in Canada. He also was eligible as a native-born uh, person, as a, uh, a having birthright citizenship because his parents, uh, his mother, uh, was indeed an American and had lived in the United States uh, for at least 10 years um, and therefore was... Uh, eligible uh, under uh, interpretations of the 14th Amendment. But this is, you know, it just sort of rounds out the attacks so that they can hit all of the hot button uh, issues that somehow appeal to this rather uh, deplorable uh, group of people who are uh, always Trumpers. Hey, by the way, um, uh, Kamala Harris's mother was born in India Donald Trump's mother was born in Scotland. Absolutely. That's right. Yes. And do we ever know if she, in fact, filed for uh, citizenship? I know yeah, she, we don't. she married yeah. an American. I don't know. Right. Right. Okay. Um, we had more news uh, from the uh, fever swamps this week uh, when uh, the GOP in Georgia elevated for in a race for Congress, a woman named um, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She has now won the primary, that was a runoff actually, um, to, uh, and uh, in a solidly Republican district of Georgia, so that she is almost certain to take her place in the House of Representatives. And she is a QAnon supporter, believer, uh, cult, cult follower. Um, there's there are others. Uh, there's Lauren Boebert of Colorado, who is almost certainly uh, going to be nominated. And we have uh, Joe Ray Perkins, who received the Republican nomination for the Senate in the state of Oregon. All believers in QAnon. Um, so, Kim, uh, uh, this is not your father's Republican Party, is it? No, I'm the FBI labeled the movement a potential domestic terrorist threat. Um, and so, you know, certainly under Bush, it was, you know, the anti-terrorism party and the strong on national defense party. And, um, and, uh, you know, we've lived through the Oklahoma city bombings and whatever. I mean, terrorism is generally something that we as Americans aren't that happy about. And here we have, um, these people potentially being in our United States, Congress. And just to just to flesh this out, because I've been surprised, frankly, about the number of friends of mine that don't know what QAnon is, um, but they believe there's a global Satan worshiping sex trafficking movement of high profile Democrats and Hollywood celebrities. Um, it's It took root in the 2020 campaign narrative for Trump voters, uh, promoted this Pizzagate notion down the street from where I live. Uh, the idea that this, this local pizza place was 
you know, trafficking children on behalf of Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it's very, very scary stuff. It's very scary stuff. So it's so far afield of any rational um, policymaking that is that is a legitimate debate around ideology or political uh, priorities um, that that we should be very wor- very worried. And, and and you know, President Trump has come out and endorsed this. It's it's uh, it's shocking in a in a in a time where it's difficult to use that word and not sound like the boy who cried wolf. JVL, here's what the president said in his tweet. Congratulations to future Republican star Marjorie Taylor Greene on a big congressional primary win in Georgia. And um, it isn't just uh, Trump. Um, uh, the GOP senator from Georgia, Kelly Loeffler, congratulated Greene. Um, McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, the uh, minority uh, leader, said uh, that the House Republicans look forward to Greene winning in November. Oh, and by the way, we found out today that she's also a 9-11 truther. Well, I mean, the Venn diagram of those two groups has got to be a circle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is this in, in my darker moments, I have come to suspect that the QAnon movement will actually have longer tail than Trumpism itself. I, I think this is actually going to be around with us for a for at least the foreseeable future, for at least the next three election cycles. I expect more Q members to make their way into politics, uh, especially at the national level. We are likely to have as many QAnon believing members of Congress come January as there are members of the squad, which, you know, should terrify people, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't quite, I'm, I'm very interested to watch how, for me, to my mind, the the ultimate direction of what will happen here is not in doubt. Uh, the Republican Party and the conservative movement will simply make its place with make its peace with QAnon, and they will either endorse it or laugh and say, "Ha ha! Look at how this triggers the libs. It makes them so angry." Uh, or they will just turn their toe in the dirt and say nothing. And but the, the actual roadway, the roadmap to getting there, I think will be kind of interesting because it, at some point, as you say in your piece today, Mona, you know, it, it, if you were in a safe conservative district, it isn't enough to be Trumpy. You've got to find whatever is, is more than Trumpy and what is more than Trumpy is Q. And the, the extent to which being, being a Q, at least open to Q being a real thing is going to be the next loyalty test for Trumpism, I I think we're headed there pretty fast. And uh, I don't know what, you know, my my buddy Rich Lowry has a piece in Politico today, interestingly in Politico and not National Review, beating up on the QAnon people. And I'm glad he's doing that. And it'll be nice if conservatives do that for as long as they're able to. But, uh, you know, one of the things I, I heard a lot, I'm sure you guys have too, all through the Trump years is, well, sure, this Republican is a terrible person, but they're good on the life issues. So if you're a conservative and you care about unborn children, well, then you just have to vote for them no matter what. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, you say what you want about the, the these Q supporters. Well, they tend to be good on the life issues so far. So does that mean that you have to vote for them if you're pro-life? Like, is this... Has has the logic of the pro life movement become a suicide pact? And you know, I, yeah. again, I think we know the answer to that. Yep, yep, I think so, Linda. The the part of the head spinning aspect of all this is that 
I don't know about you, but I used to think of Republicans as being the kind of people who had their heads screwed on straight. You know, they they understood that money doesn't grow on trees and that personal responsibility is important and that there are trade-offs in life and, you know, that they were just kind of more practically minded. Um, you know, maybe not the most idealistic people in class, but but um, but the kind who who made things run, let's put it that way. Um, and yet it seems that that when you look at who is susceptible to the weirdest, most bizarro world conspiracy stuff, turns out nowadays it's Republicans, not Democrats. Yeah, this is the new Republican Party. It's certainly not the Republican Party that uh, I joined uh, many years ago. Uh, and it's one that I find myself increasingly uncomfortable in. I haven't yet uh, changed my uh, voter registration, but I have to tell you, this QAnon stuff uh, is the tipping point for me because this is really insidious. We are talking about a conspiracy theory that is so bizarre, uh, so unfathomable, uh, that uh, sane people cannot believe these things, and right. that a significant portion of the Republican base can believe that people like Hillary Clinton and George Soros and others are taking little Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, Tom, Tom, Hanks. Hanks. Tom Hanks. Yes. Tom Hanks yes. <laughs> are taking children, keeping them as sex slaves and then eating them by the way, it involves okay. cannibalism too. Of and, course. And that there are people that believe this and who believe that somehow Donald Trump, that paragon of moral virtue, that person who cares so much about children, uh, including his own uh, uh, children, that he is the one who's going to rush in and save us all uh, from these uh, nefarious uh, Democrats and liberals who are who are eating and, and uh, sexually abusing children. Uh, it, it's just unfathomable, but part of it has to do with some of the changes in the Republican Party, the fact that the Republican Party now increasingly relies on a voter base that includes uh, people without um, a uh, college education, many without a high school education, people who are very insular in their views, um, and uh, they're low information voters, and they get their information primarily uh, from the internet, uh, from Facebook, uh, and from Fox News. And it's really scary stuff. And the uh, the Trump presidency has smashed all the barriers to nutbaggery. Uh, JVL. No, I, I was just going to make the point that Linda made, which is the actual makeup of the Republican Party is has changed. Is when you okay. when you and Linda said you know things are thing. It's like it's not my my Republican Party anymore, and that's because the voters aren't the same Republican voters. Those people, the you know the bankers and the professionals. Uh, the people who've gone to college and postgraduate, those people are rushing headlong into the arms of the Democratic Party, just as a matter of demographics. And right. this is what happens. And the other the other part of it, it's it's the demographic matchup mashup at the same moment as you have the barriers to entry to media dropping to zero. And, and then also as a side consequence of that, the cloistering of uh people's media habits so that they only hear and listen to things that, 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 you know, if you believe in QAnon, you can go weeks at a time without reading anything written by somebody who doesn't also believe in QAnon, you know, yeah. which is a thing which simply wouldn't have been possible. Even if, even when you were a bircher in the fifties, right, you would have had to have read stuff written by people who, who didn't like the birchers. And that's just not, 
not the case anymore. I also have to add, we cannot end this discussion about the QAnon phenomenon without um, noticing the role of high-ranking people, um, including Michael Flynn, former Lieutenant General of the United States Army, um, who um, has been openly signaling to the QAnon followers. Um, they have this expression where we go one, we go all. He's released a video in which he pronounces that. He has signed it in books, you know, copies of his book that he gives to to uh, to people. Um, and, you know, this is about the most cynical thing I can imagine, because look, we don't think we don't think that Michael Flynn is a believer. I don't think he's crazy. Maybe he is. But there's money to be made, right? I mean, there's a huge number of people out there who are just panting for um, QAnon material. And, and a lot of people think that that um, Flynn himself is Q because of the, the clearance issue and his past as the head of the one of the security agencies, the uh, defense security, um, in defense intelligence agency. And so he is cashing in, I believe. And um, that's a level of corruption, a willingness to put poison into the uh, atmosphere of American politics for his own reasons that is just, I mean, it's consistent with everything else we know about the guy, but, uh, but this, is, this was somebody who was the national security advisor for the uh, president of the United States. Just, you know, uh, you know I'm going to play the Democrat for just a minute. Uh, if I wanted to start a fight, you know, I would say that for 50 years, uh, good people in the Republican Party have made their peace with what bad people in the Republican Party are, have been doing as long as it further, furthered the overall cause. Uh, and I think... Uh, uh, I think that going all the way back to the Southern strategy, uh, there's been a deliberate effort to play on certain sorts of sentiments and fears uh, without being too explicit about it. <laughs> and in recent years, uh, the, um, the disguise has worn thin. Uh, and uh, I could... I could cite chapter and verse, but let me just provide one data point. Donald Trump got a bigger share of the popular vote than John McCain did. And despite the fact that he came to national prominence as the number one birther in the country, I didn't notice a lot of Republicans saying that's unacceptable and saying no to Trump because of that. Uh, and, you know, and a lot of Republicans, we may talk more about this next week, are beginning to ask themselves serious questions about complicity during this period. Uh, to, what ex you know, to what extent, and I'm not saying that Democrats haven't done this too, but to what extent has there been a deliberate shading of eyes in the name of victory? Bill, I'm going to take your challenge um, because while I think there is some truth to what you say, I also think it's a 
you know, it's a mixed bag in terms of um, shady tactics on both sides of the aisle. I mean, I know there were many instances in the last several decades where Democrats have used the unjust and unfair accusation of racism against Republicans because it was in their interest, which is also an ugly tactic. I mean, I remember the ads that the NAACP ran against George W. Bush in 2000, for example, where there had been a terrible lynching in his state. Um, and, uh, and, and, and the, the ad suggested that George W. Bush was somehow complicit, um, which was a terrible smear and completely false. Um, so, you know, the, there's a lot of fault to go around. And I don't think I, I, I noticed this, this, um, this uh, conventional wisdom that's growing now that the Republican party was always irredeemably racist and the democratic party was always pure. And now you all are coming around to seeing the error of your ways. And I say, it's not so straightforward, uh, but we can continue this. Can I, can I just jump in Mona, because I, I feel some need to respond as well. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and Bill, you know, certainly the Southern strategy um, had a very ugly aspect to it. But as someone who was described when I was appointed by uh, George Herbert Walker Bush to head the National Commission on Migrant Education as uh, the KKK uh, being appointed to oversee migrant education, um, you know, these attacks of anyone who disagrees on things like racial preferences, uh, quotas in hiring, et cetera, and, and tarring people with a racist label on that um, has not been helpful either. So I think there is uh, blame on both sides, and I'm not going to hold you responsible for things that uh, people in the very left wing of the Democratic Party have done. So please don't hold some of us responsible for the worst elements within the Republican Party. Uh, and I'm, I'm not doing that, but I sure wish we could get someone like Stuart Stevens on this show to explain the op-ed he wrote, which well, hold, I'm channeling. Hold on. Hold on. I'm right here, Bill. <laughs> and I'm, I'm basically with you, uh, honestly. And this is one of the reasons I was never a Republican and was barely a conservative. And to the extent I was conservative, I was a self-hating conservative. You know, so all, all of us, <laughs> excepting probably Kim, have been on these magazine cruises that used to be a thing before COVID killed the entire cruise industry. And when I would go on the the conservative magazine cruises, one of the things that struck me was the percentage of incredibly well-to-do Republicans who would come on these things as guests who are just flat out insane. And these would be people who had, you know, had careers and raised families and had, uh, you know, you would think were upstanding pillars of their society. And they thought that Hillary Clinton ordered Vince Foster to be murdered and that there was a you know, an airfield in Mina where they were running cocaine. And these people were just just Looney Tunes. And I never really understood how that worked. I didn't understand how you could, you know, run your profession, you know, be a doctor or a dentist or a banker or an engineer or whatever, and and also be a person who was crazy in this other little sphere of your life. And it I, you know, I don't know. I, to me, it did seem like something that was part of Republicanism and conservatism, uh, maybe even uniquely so. So basically, I'm with Bill. Okay, Bill, you, did you want to did you want to add anything? No, I have oh, okay. my say, and thank you okay. for tolerating it. 
Oh, no, no, not at all. Absolutely. All right. So, um, Kim, why don't you start us off on our last segment, something we want to highlight or low light? Um, well, I have a couple things. One is just uh, that I saw this beautiful Instagram. This is a happy moment of a small baby who had issues seeing and the mom got him glasses. And I suggest everyone take a look because to watch a 10 month old baby or so see for the first time is it, it brought so much joy. And it almost was like an analogy for, I hope the rest of us can sort of see some things a little bit more clearly. But as far as a, as far as a, a topic, what I wanted to raise is this piece that was in Just Security by Ryan Goodman and Asha Rangappa about Ron Johnson's investigation involving uh, Ukraine. Um, Of course, Ron Johnson is a Republican of Wisconsin, chair of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. And he's looking into this debunked conspiracy theory that Ukraine was involved in election interference in 2016. And, And the thing that's troubling about it Um, is that there are at least three channels, it looks like, of Russian information going allegedly into Senator Johnson's Ukraine-related investigation, operatives directly communicating with his staff, spreading disinformation via via media outlets, which are being picked up by his staff. And of course, um, and I say of course because we've heard this name before, uh, Russian-linked Ukrainian operatives providing information through Team Rudy Giuliani. uh, And you know, it, the, the fact that this didn't get m- much, you know, it didn't register on the radar in my mind of so, with so much going on and people are just so overwhelmed. Um, it's death by a million, not just a thousand cuts in this moment. It just shows how far we were from the Mueller investigation and even impeachment where these kinds of concerns, I'm not saying this is happening, but this would in the old days have raised serious red flags. And one of the biggest problems across the aisle and in this moment, really with the Republicans, frankly, because of, you know, Donald Trump in office and the Republican control of the Senate as a constitutional scholar, um, one of the biggest problems is just the lack of accountability. As I tell my students, if you don't get a ticket for speeding, the speed limit doesn't matter. And I think going in this to this election in the fall, all of these issues, Americans have to ask themselves, do they want a system of government where elected politicians, Democrat, Republican, get tickets for speeding and those speed limits would be set by federal law, including the Constitution? And that's really on the ballot in my mind in, in November is whether we want an accountable government at all. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. Uh, Bill Galston. Yes. uh, About an hour before we started this week's podcast, uh, the Pew Research Center issued a remarkable survey. Uh, And let me just give you one of its findings. Uh, They give voters, you know, and they have for 20 years, a choice between two responses. Uh, One response, it really matters who wins the presidential election. The other response, things will be pretty much the same regardless of who is elected. Uh, In the year 2000, 50% said it really matters. 44% said things would be pretty much the same. I'm going to skip the intervening years and, and get to the payoff, which is this year, 83% say that it really matters who wins the presidential election, and only 16% say that nothing much will change whoever wins. 
uh, that is by a very considerable number uh, margin, the highest number of people saying it really matters that Pew or anybody else has ever found. Uh, and this is one of about half a dozen reasons why I believe that despite all of the complications in, for the election this year, we are going to see a record turnout, and I'm not sure we're going to be ready to deal with it. And didn't we, wasn't the 2018 turnout the highest there had ever been for a midterm? Yes. And, yeah. But it was asymmetrically the highest because it went out, well, actually, to be, to be technical, it was the highest we've seen, we think, since 1914. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, wow. in, the old, in the good old days when the suffrage was confined to right white men, uh, turnout tended to be higher. Things have gone downhill terribly since then. Uh, <laughs> Actually, you know, men, um, it's just a little the footnote, but um, men are less likely to vote than women and have been declining in their voter participation for a number of years. And in every other respect, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. So true. Okay. Uh, Linda. Well, I'm going to switch gears here and be totally apolitical. As some of the guests know, because we were chatting before the podcast, I took an airplane ride for the first time on Monday, and I'm here to tell you that the planes were mostly packed. Uh, the airport was quite full in Dulles, less so in Denver, where I landed, and, but everybody had on their masks. And what I want to point to today is what I think is a very important article in the Washington Post, and it is called How to Take Care of for your mask and why you shouldn't hang it from your rear view mirror. It's in the wellness section of the Washington Post uh, by Allison Chu. And I'll read you just one line from it because I think it says it all. And that is treat your mask like your underwear. You want to change it every day. So Right. Um, and definitely don't hang it from the rear screen. <laughs> right. Well, I don't know about you, but that was my my practice. Anyway, I think uh, you know, seriously, uh information about how to wear masks, what kind of masks are the most helpful, and how to treat your mask. Remember, if it is in fact protecting you or protecting others from you, it means that there are germs all over it, uh, including virus germs. And so uh, you do want to wash it frequently, you want to change it, and uh, people need to be aware of that. Thank you for that. Okay, JVL. Yeah, By the know, way, can, before you start, JVL, can yeah. I just say, regarding the um, the people who go on those cruises, um, because I've been on many, many, many cruises uh, uh, with, you know, uh, magazine cruises, shall we say. Um, and um, I, I couldn't agree with you more that the many of the denizens are nuts. But I would add that I've never been on a nation cruise. They do them, well, they them too. And I just don't know whether that's true of people on the left as well. So anyway, just throw that out there. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually the, the, the nicest and not everybody I should say is like that. I was on one of these cruises where we had a lady who was cruising with us. This was at the weekly standard who had just been on the nation cruise. So it was the, the nation had been on our boat the week before us, and then we, uh -huh. and she just stayed on the boat and did two oh, weeks. Funny. And so <laughs> when we funny. found this out, we were fascinated by her. And so I, you know, we went and a bunch of the young younger kids on the the 
from the magazine sought her out and said, hey, we would just like to know your story. What sort of person does this? And so we went and took her out for lunch. And it turns out she just lost her husband. And Aww. this was her first. Uh, she wasn't even especially political, but she wanted to get out and uh, just have company. And mm. this was a way to be around people who would talk to you no matter what. And she did say she wasn't especially political, that she thought the conservatives were generally much nicer and more sociable than the liberals of the nation <laughs> crews had been. Yeah. She probably told the nation people the opposite, but that's I, okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> but she kidding. was lovely. So some of the people, you know, not not everybody. No, uh, were you right. on the famous were you on the famous Sarah Palin cruise? I was on that cruise. Uh, it was it was much 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 less interesting than reported. <laughs> Damn, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry to report. Uh, I was very happy the the night that uh, Kamala Harris was selected. Uh, there was a conservative slash Republican writer for a major conservative magazine who tweeted that Kamala Harris was incredibly dangerous because of her penchant for norm breaking and the threat she represented <laughs> to the rule of law. And I think this was a real highlight because, you know, what What the hell? Conservatives care about the rule of law again. So yeah. great. Good news. <laughs> Good news. Right. Um, okay. I'm going to recommend a piece um, by... Uh, our friend Anne Applebaum, who has appeared on this podcast and is a national treasure. Um, she wrote a piece in The Atlantic called The Facts Just Aren't Getting Through. And it's it's about the way we consume information. Um, and she talked with, uh, with the Bulwark's uh, Sarah Longwell and uh, and she also had several international comparisons because these phenomena are worldwide that uh, people are choosing what news they consume rather than just uh, being exposed to uh, whatever the uh, networks and uh, newspapers serve up. So it's a huge, huge problem. And it's at the root of so much of what is happening in our world. And, um, and she, she, talks in this piece about ways of chipping away at those, those information silos. Um, and uh, so I recommend it. And uh, that is it for us this week. Uh, you can rate us, you can comment, you can write to me at mcharon at eppc.org. Um, love to get your feedback. And of course, ratings and reviews are always welcome. And we will be back again next week. 